I'm Susanna Walters, and welcome to Ask a Feminist, a podcast from Signs, Journal of Women in Culture and Society. On this podcast, we actually ask feminists about the pressing issues of the day to provide the kind of feminist analysis and context that is often missing in mainstream coverage. It's been a while since our last episode, thanks to the global COVID pandemic, but we're back with a great conversation with Patricia Williams, the renowned feminist theorist and legal scholar. She joined Carla Kaplan and Durba Mitra, two of the co-editors of the upcoming special issue of Signs on Rage, to talk about the multiple crises we face at the current moment, from Donald Trump's cruel legacy of misogyny and racism to the failures of market-based approaches to the COVID-19 pandemic. They also discussed new forms of surveillance that have emerged during the pandemic and the disproportionate levels of emotional labor that particular groups, especially Black women, have been expected to take on throughout Trump's presidency. It's an important conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. I am Carla Kaplan, and today I and Durba Mitra will be in conversation with Patricia Williams for the special issue of Signs on Rage. And it is an enormous privilege to be in conversation today with Professor Patricia Williams, University Distinguished Professor of Law and Humanities at Northeastern University School of Law, talking about rage, COVID-19, and the ongoing political struggles that define this moment including the Movement for Black Lives. Dr. Williams has published widely in the areas of race, gender, feminism, and law. Her books, including The Alchemy of Race and Rights, The Rooster's Egg, Open House, Seeing a Colorblind Future, her long-running, extraordinary series, Diary of a Mad Law Professor in the Nation, her many essays for journals such as Ms and her numerous academic articles and essays have been foundational for feminist scholarship and advocacy today. I've, I've had the pleasure over the last few weeks of rereading um, all your books, which are like absurdly annotated. You know, it's just nothing. Oh, but how lovely. <laughs> um, but I've had the pleasure of, of rereading everything for this interview. One of the things that struck me on this rereading. And it really struck me because you have the tendency to describe yourself, particularly in contrast to your sister, as having a grimmer outlook, as being somebody who can't release the weight of the world's negativity. But one of the signature qualities of your work is how brilliantly and deftly you use humor. The first essay of Alchemy, in which you construct the fictional conversation between you as law professor and your sister, right? it's, it's really funny. Mm -hmm. You know, you go into this incredible legal jargon and you spin out these formulae and she says, polar bears? <laughs> what do you mean? Mm -hmm. And it struck me so hard because this has been a moment when so many of us are finding any laughter really difficult, when everybody, I think, feels grim, 
feels weighted by not just rage, but a kind of exhaustion, a kind of depression. And yet you find ways to be wonderfully humorous. Well, I do think that my outlook on the political landscape was grim when I was writing this long-term. And I actually think that what I was worried about has come to pass in ways yeah. that I couldn't. And I think that's why much to my consternation, alchemy in particular is so resonant today because nothing has changed <laughs> and it's gotten worse. And the, you know, what philosopher Lynn Terrell described as genocidal language, it has a, it's its own viral load. So I do think that I am grim, but about certain things. Um, I think what you describe as humor is a particular kind of humor. I do have a deep sense of the absurd. I, I, I think yeah. that my, one of my earliest recollections is my Aunt Sophie saying that that three-year-old child over there has a keen sense of the absurd. <laughs> and I think that that is, it's, it's not so much a ha-ha sense of humor. I don't do puns. I don't do... Um, you know, I think there's, there's so many varieties of humor. Um, but I think that if I have any skill in, the, in, in what one might think of as humor, it is to take two things which seem so inconsistent and to join them in ways mm -hmm. that, that bring to the fore the, the cognitive dissonance um, that, that they're embedded in. And, and you don't hear it until you sort of play it out and put them together and they become jarring and even, and, and, and that feels like a funny moment. Um, and I think that also goes to the sense of voice that you pointed to, even in the, uh, the excerpt uh, from which you read, the, the, it is not clearly the true voice of my sister, but it is, right. you know, there's something parodic of both of us. I mean, we're, I, 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 it's a send up of both of us um, in terms of taking the hyper, exaggerated legal voice and the hyper-exaggerated, um, intimate, familiar, familial voice um, that she represents, um, of taking the, uh, almost the Cartesian, at a different point in the book, a Cartesian sense of logical, positivistic, scientific voice and pairing it with something that is uh, fictional and ephemeral, the, um, the rabbit ghosts, for example. Yeah. I think that was another conversation with my sister. Yeah. Um, and putting those two together, but we're actually talking about the same thing. And I'm not talking about rabbit, rabbit ghosts in reality. I'm trying to illustrate um, the affective echo um, that, um, that clings to even the most scientific and positivistic uh, formulations. And so that's what I'm trying to do. And I think it often seems funny and haha, laugh aloud in ways that can also be precisely, you know, sort of Edward Gorey Grimm. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was thinking of the same, the dialogic, that dialogue between you and your sister is so striking because it's, it's funny as you say, Carla, uh, and as you say, it's grim, it's also a relief. You know, I don't, you know, one is the relief of self-recognition. How many of us have had to explain, in, as you describe as the Cartesian, right, that hyper-rational form of, thinking that we do um, to, as you described, the ephemeral or that person who's sitting next to us. But it's also this, this sense of relief because the grimness is something that we sit with. And so mm -hmm. as you describe that affective form, however much we talk about these supposedly objective things, these scientific things, that we know the effect, we live within the affect. And that's so much of the power of your work is the way that you always 
bring us back to our bodies. I mean, it's just such an important, important thing for me as a, as a feminist. So I'm just really happy to be in conversation with you. Uh, yeah, no, no, and, and it's, it, it also feels like it's, it's that that humor is very much linked into the portal to a sense of outrage frequently, I mean, which, which sort of brings us back to the theme of this. I do feel like my humor is very linked. If, I, I wouldn't have used the word grim, mm -hmm. but it, it is the expressive side of what I am constantly told not to say. Yep. Um, and so it's an act of disobedience frequently. Um, and uh, the, you know, it's, it's the dissenting voice that says, well, wait a second, in this case, you've left out the most important fact. You've left out the, 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 the actual uh, indent on the body. And, and, and that's, that's distressing. Um, if, and so I think that that range of emotion, whether we call it grimness or distress or stress or outrage is, is, is frequently right at the edge of what, of where those, those, those junctures that I call the absurd <laughs> exist. I think for, for many of us, for many feminists, part of what is so difficult about the contemporary crisis is this sense of its absurdity um, that, and I'm so glad you introduced the sort of notion of the absurd. Many of us are still struggling to understand how we got from Barack Obama as a nation, right, to Donald Trump. It is, it is really an absurd political moment. It's a moment that is, absurd in, in all the wrong ways. And we wanted to ask you about the kinds of emotions, the kinds of affects these absurdities, this crisis is creating, about some of the differences between affects like depression, rage, outrage, and if you had any feelings about what are the most useful affects for us to try to mobilize, to try to work with? And what are the ones we need to try to set aside? I am so cautious about whether I want to own being a humorist in these books. Mm. Humor is so frequently misunderstood. Yeah. And I think that the answer to how we got to this moment is Donald Trump's um, very performative use of a particular brand of humor, a particularly cruel type of humor. And there are many types of humor, and that's why I think that mine is about a certain kinds of you know, absurd juxtapositions. His is the kind of humor that mocks, that makes fun of, that, that marks difference and, uh, and, 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 and implants a sense of hierarchy. But at the same time, disowns the cruelty in it by saying, oh, I was, it was only a joke, or it's only satire. Um, and I think that cruelty masked by laughter is a very, very powerful tool of autocrats and awful people, frankly. And so, you know, when shock jocks first came to the, and I mentioned this, I think, in, in The Rooster's Egg, as well as in Open House, when shock jocks first were licensed to do what they were doing, when the, we had a breakdown in terms of fairness in broadcasting, um, you had Rush Limbaugh, you had Bob Grant, you had a, a, a host of personalities that have become 
the staples who have now bled into the corporate uh, structure of Fox News. And I remember many people saying, oh, no, I don't believe a thing he says, but he's so funny. Rush Limbaugh is so funny. It did not seem funny to me because I was on the other side. My body was on the other side of his jokes about black people, about bones to the nose, about, um, about politics. And his humor from the start was a divisive one, which, uh, which was at the expense of, of certain bodies, but not others, and which ended up with the, the, you know, the schoolyard bully on top and the bleeding weakling um, 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 on the ground. That kind of mockery of, you know, Donald Trump when he imitated a reporter with a certain kind of cerebral palsy or, this isn't funny, um, it's bullying. Um, the, 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 the laughing that, the, that happened on the Capitol steps with the kids from Covington Catholic, people may grow up, but I also worry that that was dismissed, not for it being bad behavior, but because it was just a joke, or he didn't mean it, he was just, and, and that, the, you know, that, that cruel smiling that was captured of him, uh, in, of that young man, you know, face to face with a Native American elder, um, has too many echoes in our history of, for example, the young children who smiled that you see in postcards from the 1920s and 30s who were smiling at, at lynchings. You know, that this echo of a certain kind of cruel smile is really, really troubling about this moment. I don't feel particularly hypnotized by this man, as many people do, so I don't think that anything he says is a joke. I have never heard, I mean, and I think that we don't hear so much of what he has said that he means that he's clearly not joking. Yeah. Um, like the full page ad he took out about the Central Park Five. I don't understand why uh, as much of it is, is perceived as a joke, and I think that it, it's performative, and I think that's why he gets away with it. He dresses like a 1930s version of Mr. Moneybags in the Monopoly game. I mean, you know, his coat is a little long, if you recall, his tie is a little long. You know, that's, he's like a circus ringleader. He's an impresario in a very, very intentional sense. And so I think that even when he's deadly serious, people miss it. Miss it. Um, but I think, you know, and I, I, I think I did a column about this, the degree to which he, you know, he was not joking when he looked at his rally and said, you know, my people, my people, they love me so much that I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. And he literally seriously takes his finger and does a, you know, a finger pointing gun motion. He was not joking at that moment. And the idea that people take it as a joke is because they're still riding high on the performativity of it. But that's very much what he then invokes when he says, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Yeah. Um, or, when he, or when he sends you know, unmarked federal troops into Oregon. Yeah. Um, or when he charges peaceful dissenters with felonies. And we need to put those charges of felony together with the fact that most states do not have, or, or you know, have some form of, of felony disenfranchisement, which means that they will be, that their voting rights and their jury, we have capacity to sit on juries is endangered. We are following so many of, so many policies that are clearly against, not just the best interests of designated minorities or women or migrants. You know, the idea that we should all just get out and go shopping, so to speak, <laughs> in the middle of a deadly pandemic in order to change, 
and and to hold up the, you know the, the you know what has been created as the golem of the economy um, and sacrifice ourselves for that and again I think that we clearly have to continue living but the idea that we're doing this without any unified federal coherent policy about providing PPE for our essential workers. Um, and by essential workers, I don't just mean hospital workers, but people in meatpacking plants, by the people who, you know, who do, you know, who, who are mopping the floors of hospitals, who are, you know, who are handling the dead. And then somehow the, you know, the, the response to this incoherence is that we just forge ahead and, you know, some people are gonna die anyway. We're all gonna die anyway. Right. <laughs> this is a kind of crazy that we behave so much against our self-interest that it's almost suicidal in the face of that we cannot imagine, you know, the deadly powerful force that we can't suspend our activity or support as some European countries do, again, very imperfectly, but we're not going to evict half of our population, that we're going to provide stimulus checks, that we're going to rework, you know, food distribution systems. You know, if, if it isn't within a model of market, we don't know what to do. And we have so done away with discourse of public interest, of public health, of public community, that we don't even know how to think about it. And so that's why the economy becomes more important than public health. Mm -hmm. We've forgotten how to even talk about it. I think, you know, one of the, I think one of the key ideas that you mentioned, and I think Carla, you meant, you started by thinking about the absurdity of this moment. And the outrage, you, you use the term outrage. But you know, the funny thing about the absurdity of this moment is that when, I, when we read your books, you know, 1991, where, you know, you recognize the absurdity before, you know, you've always known the absurdity, meaning to say that it's not Donald Trump, that this, the racism that we live in, with now is, has always been there. And I, I think your citation of the lynching postcard, the lynching photograph to be kind of a, the best emblem that we've always lived with one absurd kind of set of people who've, who've lived by the death drive, by a death drive of sorts. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could talk a, a little bit about thinking about the long term, because we can talk about outrage in this moment, but really how rage and outrage in American society has in some ways always been conceptualized by Black feminist thought, and how Black feminist theory can help us think about thinking about outrage. Um, and I'm thinking about this, especially because of the way you describe yourself as the mad law professor or the question of madness uh, or intelligent rage that, you know, it is really black women more than anyone whose outrage has been either misrecognized or dismissed entirely. But um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how black feminist theorizing around rage might be productive for thinking not only about the outrage of our moment, but more broadly, you know, a long tradition of thinking about rage. There is a particular expression of Black women, particularly descendants of slaves in this country, whose voices have been stymied and silenced. And when you express it, it gets called, oh, you're just crazy. And being called crazy makes me angry, which is why I adopted Madlock, because it has that, that, that double sense of madness as a way of expressing, you know, that catch-22 of never being heard for the substance of it, but simply, oh, your tone is just so either crazy or too angry to be paid attention to. It's too extreme in its, um, in its force rather than its substance. 
And, uh, you know, to, to, again, the, the, the question of hashtag Black Lives Matter being founded by three women, African-American women, I think it's very particular um, to this moment. Uh, but at the same time, Black men have a contextualized sense of how to express one's anger. <laughs> I think the, the, the figure of Barack Obama who could never be angry, people kept saying, why doesn't he get angrier at the birther? Because he can't. And the question of Black men being killed for expressing a certain kind of um, discomfort um, with, with, with these situations. So even the, the, the feedback to Black Lives Matter being, you know, well, white lives matter too, um, is contextual to a sense of your testimony about your particular lived experience being dismissed. If my voice is heard as a black feminist voice, I would like it to be representative of a collective experience that is both particular, but also has elements that ought to be identifiable across all kinds of boundaries, not just American, but international boundaries as well. What are the metrics of when somebody is silenced and they are suffering and you know, what are the circumstances under which you dismiss, under which one dismisses it as madness or you know, plays with humor? I mean, I'm thinking particularly of, of one of the books I teach is Hakobo Timmerman's um, Prisoner Without a Name, Cell Without a Number um, about the junta in Argentina and his being imprisoned and watching the prison guards mock him and mock his body and make fun of his body. Um, I'm thinking of Sandra Gilman's book, The Jew's Body, of very particular physical attributes being mocked and made fun of, um, and the affective dimension of gender being made fun of in the, in the Weimar. Uh, so, so when Donald Trump talks about nasty women, it isn't just what they said. I mean, nasty is a word that children use about sexual putrefaction. Yes. Totally. You know, and so there's an affective dimension that is specifically gendered that isn't just, again, about the fact that, oh, she has a bad temper. It's about the fact that her, you know, you know she smells. And, mm -hmm. and that, you know, and, and he brings all of that. But that was also a feature of how Jewish women were described. And so this has a long history. Nothing Donald Trump says really can't be traced to long histories. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that is another part of his power. He takes long histories and, and, and you know, it's, it's been commented how much of his rhetoric, you know, is, is he really aware of looting and shooting, you know, that, you know, that this goes back to segregation and that somebody said it before and I was, oh, oh, never heard it before. And we've lost, we have such a poor sense of history that I think the ability to actually match those to where, to the history of those particular phrases um, is lost at our peril because if we have lost a sense of those words, they are nevertheless resonant at a deep cultural level. They are built into the framework of how we think, even if we don't remember the particular circumstances in which they first originated. The China flu isn't new. It goes all the way back you know, to the condemnation of Chinese citizens or the, those who are struggling for citizenship in the United States and migrants who built the railways but the, the ghettoization of Chinese in Chinatown in San Francisco. And so when there was an outbreak of, was it typhus or smallpox or both in San Francisco, obviously those diseases affect everybody, but they were blamed because of precisely the same density issues we're facing with COVID and why it disproportionately affects populations of color right now, but it was blamed on the Chinese population and Chinatown and ultimately those 
ethnic resentments resulted in things like the Chinese Exclusion Act. We have forgotten about the history of typhoid Mary, um, yep. as she was disparagingly called. That was a woman named Mary Malone, who was an asymptomatic carrier of typhus. And um, when it was found out, she who was spreading it throughout wealthy families and which she worked as a laundress or a cook, I've forgotten, I think a cook. Cook. Um, yeah. Um, it was not just resentment that she continued to evade the public health authorities, but that she was Irish and slovenly. Those habits you know, of, of thought and of structures of moving from singular to plural. So it's almost a grammatical habit that we have that allow for the rotation and the recirculation and the resurgence um, of these kinds of markings and mockery. That even when the word, the particular word is unfamiliar, it's, it's the grammatical relations um, that, that research, and that's what we're seeing now to a fairly well. And he's very good, Trump is very good at raising and recirculating these. Over a year ago in The Nation, you wrote that we're living through a time of emergency and how true it is now. And I'm thinking of this time of emergency in relation to questions of privacy and property because of your scholarship and how it has transformed how we think about these ideas from everything on race, gender, and property to the place of technology. Right now, we hear of incidents of domestic violence, so this kind of other realm of property law, um, domestic violence dramatically increasing during the pandemic. And we all, of course, acutely know the unequal forms of household labor and the way the private has been ascribed a position in terms of the question of household labor and housework and how that has transformed as a result of the pandemic. And then of course we see transformative social movements like Moms for Housing, where black women in Oakland are reclaiming foreclosed homes to fight foreclosure and homelessness, which as you pointed out earlier in our conversation, the homelessness crisis is just about to get much worse. You know, we can't, there's no, yeah. no possibility that it's going to get any better at this point. So I wonder if you might think with us a little bit about privacy, property and domesticity now how might we reflect on this question of privacy and domesticity in the current crisis? Yeah, I think, you know, I worry about privacy as unduly located in, as a form of property and located in private property, that it is literally located if one were to sort of look at the old Greek spheres in the domus, it really is, you know, it, it is literally within one's house. And if one doesn't have one house, one's, if, not, if one is not in one's house, one, and has no expectation of privacy. But I think that privacy ought to be linked with the question of human dignity. And again, in our, it doesn't thread easily through American constitutional discourse. It's much more present in European um, human rights discourse. And in the United States, we, haven't, we don't talk about human rights, we talk about civil rights. And those rights tend to be conscribed or you know, held private to citizenship and excluding others as opposed to broadly human rights. So for me, privacy is um, about the care of, of the, the integrity of one's body. And so privacy needs to be linked to the public sphere as well, as in the question of the limits of surveillance. Privacy and surveillance go hand in hand. The question of surveillance in, in this moment is that so many people making supposedly private choices to say, yes, it's okay, you can 
you know, have access to all my information. Every time we press on a computer, I agree, you know, opening up the entire range of our shopping habits, but also our browsing habits, everything we do becoming the property and not the private property, but the property of marketing companies or Google or Amazon or whatever. Um, but then redistributed because those are really the assets of those companies, our DNA, everything. Um, it becomes redistributed to new incentive channels, you know, by which we are, and we are focused in, in terms of what we get when we open our computers. And since our entire heads are being sucked into it, then these really reformulate our norms and our values and everything else. And so we are giving rise to a kind of laissez-faire form of the Chinese credit system. And the Chinese credit system surveys every aspect of every citizen's life, from their kindergarten records to their jaywalking records to whether they pay bills or taxes, and then builds into that incentive systems about whether you can leave your province or whether or not you have to earn your way back up to an ability to travel or to do something else. And it seems to me that, that that's what we're risking at this point with this heavy level of Siri and, you know, in our homes, there are no boundaries to simply mm -hmm. the old fashioned domus and, you know, the, the notion of an economic sphere as being all about individual choice, which proceeds from the household into the, into the, into the market. There, there is no, the technology has made all that so porous and then transferred a certain level of influence and control into corporations who are not accountable to us in any sense, but they're acting like governments. Mm -hmm. They're governing our actions in all kinds of really substantive ways. And we have no constitutional limit on that. And so the, it, there has to be a new technological regime. And of course that would threaten the accumulation of <laughs> profits for very, very large, you know, trillion dollar companies like Amazon. Apple and so forth, but, but some of this has to be redistributed in ways that are for public good, public benefit, and are not simply about examining and you know, extract. I mean, it's, there's a very extractive sense to what we mean by private at this point. And that surveillance um, is not just about policing on the streets, it's also about policing in every other aspect of our lives. Mm -hmm. um, see what you're doing and see how we can make you more profitable. It's so striking to, again, go back to alchemy and that first, you know, the first chapter where you talk about what it means to be the subject of property, the object of property. I mean, that resonating form, right? That it's not who you are, that you have always, you have been objectified as a kind of property. It's really interesting and striking to link that to what you're describing here. I'm sort of interested in um, picking up the discussion of resentment that you are having in broad terms and and using it to come back to issues of affect, but in much more specific terms than we were just talking about it. In, in a recent essay of yours, Stop Getting Married on Plantations, yeah. you talked about the, having to feel a kind of resentment on behalf of black and brown women who have to constantly parse microaggressions. Was this intentional? Did the person on the plane know what they were saying? Do they mean to be dancing on the graves of my ancestors? Do they understand what they're referencing? What is meant here? And I started thinking from that about all of the ways in which we're looking at this moment of emergency, this moment of crisis, of a really disproportional labor burden of affect. 
that we have a really disproportional effective labor going on where the burden of outrage does not fall equally on all of us and where black and brown bodies and particularly black and brown women have to assume a really disproportionate burden of outrage. It's stressful to be on the receiving end of collective misperceptions that one might less kindly call ignorance <laughs> um, or assumption or prejudice or prejudgments. I mean, prejudgment, I mean, to judge somebody without knowing them. The license and the cultural habit of thinking you know everything about somebody else um, and then judging them without checking in <laughs> is the essence of prejudice. Or seeing one person and knowing somebody who seems to have the same skin color and therefore they must be exactly the same. That mm -hmm. move from the singular to the plural or the mm -hmm. lumpification of all people. It seems to me that that's not necessarily about race, it's not necessarily about gender, but the degree to which our norms and our culture permit certain people to make those presumptions and other people to have to respond to them or endure them, or if they observe, wait a second, what the hell are you talking about? You are misrepresenting me. The open-heartedness to learn from one's own ignorance when it gets pointed out to one rather than, I mean, I think that's why at, at moments like this, where certain very uncomfortable things are on the table, we just need to bring more boxes of Kleenex to the table as well, but not to take these topics off the table. I also think that it, it, it helps to remember that talking about race is a kind of taboo in our culture. Uh, I'm so happy that Isabel Wilson's book about caste is mm -hmm. on the bestseller list right now, because certainly one of the characteristics of caste is not just the out-of-placeness, which I know that She's gotten lots of attention for that sense of out-of-placeness. You know, you don't belong here. You, you're on the other right. side of the red-lined geography. There's a cartographic, a geographic sense of displacement. But there is also, you know, who has the ability to talk back, not just to talk, but to talk back. And to talk about race at all in a culture that is committed to saying, I don't even see race. I don't even see race. Even when you're, you clearly only say that when you are seeing race and your eyeballs are about to fall out because you're so struck by how black this person is and all you can do is protest, I don't even see you, I don't see you. And so this incredible you know, sense of, I don't see you is a taboo, it's a pushing back, let's not talk about race. Race has, makes people uncomfortable because it's a horrible history and you don't want to feel blamed or you want to feel innocent, you want to feel perfect. As feminists, we have a long history of having to live with the perception and often the self-perception, as Sarah Ahmed puts it, of being killjoys. And I'm wondering if, in terms of what you're describing, this aversion to the difficult and to the uncomfortable, if as feminists who've had to live with being killjoys for a long time, we have particular tools in our tool chest for this, particular resources, if feminists have something specific to offer that moment. You know, I, 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 I do think that, you know, this brings it full circle. I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's humor. I mean, you, you know, I, I sort of disavowed humor, but I do think that, yeah, <laughs> I have 
practiced humor to take the edge off some of the more pointed things I have to say to some of my students or to some of my colleagues or to some, you know, in, uh, you know, in, in political settings or, or you know, to, to do things that make it a little bit funny or to take the emotional intensity, you know, to, to sort of provide a professional hug, which is a very difficult thing because I don't want to be, you know, the, the hugging you know, this is what women always do. We have to hug and we have to comfort and we have to do all of that. But, but how to keep this on the table is, is something that I, I do think that is part of women's labor, but it's also about black labor. It's why Martin Luther King framed his revolution in terms of love. But I do think that it has, you know, to talk straightforwardly and not to have to remind you, oh, really, I love you. Really, really, I'm not, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I don't want this is where the labor really, really comes in. You know, it's, it, and so, you know, I think I've told Sarah, in fact, Ahmed, you know, I am a happy killjoy. And I, and I hope people laugh at that, but not, you know, but it's, it is an attempt not to have to, you know, pussyfoot around the fact that this may hurt your feelings when I tell you that you are drawing from a legacy of slavery. And it's so hard to do because I think that the moment you become a killjoy, to really press it, then you do risk losing it at some point. There are moments when my nerves become frayed and you don't want this to end in a big cat fight or people walking away and never talking again. I mean, you know, it's, it, there's a lot that has happened in the last few months, particularly around Black Lives Matter. You know, I've heard people of all races saying, I am just tired. I don't want to talk to anybody who's white. I don't want to talk to this. I don't want to talk to that. I don't want to talk to anybody who's black. I am tired of hearing about this. I don't, you know, I, I tried to be an ally, but you didn't. And I think that this requires a very long-term and, you know, commitment. The commitment is to walk away, you know, when you're flooded, <laughs> but to come back and to pursue it past that point. That's, you know, because nobody expects this to be without a lot of pain. This is, this is painful. You know, I understand what is meant by the term Karens or Miss Anne and all of that. I also think it's risky to resort to those kinds of generalizations and those plurifications. It's, it's easy and it's sometimes can be funny and we can roll our eyes about this, but I think it serves us better to talk about the specific instances, the specific people, and then say, statistically, this has happened a hundred times. And so we need to figure out what it is about this status that makes this so possible, that makes this woman reach for her phone to call 911, you know, how, you know, and talk about that history. But to label that person as a Karen is a gesture that I think is comforting on the one level, but it's a riposte. It's a, it's, a ten, it's a smacking back of the tennis ball of calling me, you know, um, you know Jane Crow. You know, it's, it's, you know it's, it's when my father grew up in the Deep South and they used to call all black people, you know, oh, you know, Jenny, Jenny, you know, because all black people were a Jenny or, you know, Jim was a Jim, you know, hey, Jimmy, you know, and they didn't bother to get your, get your name. And I don't mean to say it's exactly the same thing. It's not the same thing. There's something, you know, satisfyingly mean-spirited about doing that from time to time. But I, I really do want to, you know, I, I caution against that generally because I think it's it's um, the first time around, you know, you know, to do it is a way of highlighting, you know, what it is that you're doing. But when it becomes a habit of speech, it worries me. It worries me because then we're, you know, then we're all, we're, you know, we're we're dismissing each other with 
with labels. But um, one of the things that I find striking is the parallelism between what you're describing, the move from the singular, singular to the plural that Donald Trump does so easily when he talks about yeah. the Chinese virus. Yeah, and yeah. The, the idea that to call something someone a Karen, like what kind mm -hmm. of collectivity do we wish to build? And what is the yeah, work that we yeah. wish to do, as you say? What kind of work yeah. are we supposed to do together? I mean, yeah. I agree to call some, the question of calling something out that is racist is really important and satisfying, yeah. but what yeah. is the work after that? The work, you know, it's this disproportionate labor that, 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 that Carla points out, you know, is that, that black women carry and that black men carry and that minorities carry and that migrants carry and South Asians carry and that, you know, that white people who want to be allies carry and Jews want to carry, you know, that we, that it's harder to be coalitional um, with a white mm -hmm. woman actually named Karen. Yes. <laughs> we have already, you know, sort of placed the boundary at, at, at that point. And we need all the coalitions we can get at this point. But coming together is coalitional work and it's, you know, coming together uh, makes that emotional labor somewhat more effective, but also less stressful upon any particular group and particularly upon individual bodies. And we. We've got to come together. We just have to, and it's not—it's not going to be easy. But, but, but I, I don't see any other option. That's such a a wonderful and kind of hopeful, perfect moment. We should probably end because that's such a perfect call, and and it is that that moment of optimism and hope, which I always find in your work, and I'm always a little surprised by because you're so good <laughs> at laying out what's hopeless and then you always have that little moment of remembering yeah. that we do have to come together. This was wonderful, uh, so rich. Really rich. So much to work with. And I just wanna say, it's just, I, I can't tell you, I just was beaming the whole time, I realized, because I just feel so lucky to hear the way you think. Oh, thank you, thank you. I really, really appreciate your questions, your framing, your pushing me. Uh, this was so helpful to me, thank you. Thanks so much again to Patricia Williams, Carla Kaplan, and Durba Mitra for sharing this conversation with us. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review. Ask a Feminist is part of a larger project we're doing at Signs called the Feminist Public Intellectuals Project, which is all available for free on our website at signsjournal.org. You can find tons of fabulous free feminist content there, including our short take series, where we offer commentaries on recent books, most recently, Ijomo Oluo's Mediocre. We also have a series called Feminist Frictions, which has essays on controversial topics like trigger warnings and identity politics. And you can find this on Twitter and Facebook at Signs Journal. I'm Susanna Walters. Thanks for listening.